31 says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So if you read the little preview that I sent out to you this week through email and Facebook and so forth, you know that I want to start by telling you about this little church that's just outside of Rome on the Appian Way. And uh, the Appian Way is is the name for uh, one of the world's first, maybe the first superhighway. The Romans had created really fine roads and the Appian Way was so well built that it's still with us today. The departments of transportation around our country might want to take some notes. But along the Appian Way, leaving Rome, there's a little church that is called the Church of the Quo Vadis. Quo Vadis. And those are Latin words that translate basically to whither goest thou? Or where are you going? Now there's a legend associated with that church and that place on the Appian Way that says that when Peter was leaving Rome one time in the years that followed Jesus' ascension to heaven, he was working his way out of town because his life was in danger. He was under threat of persecution. And so Peter was hitting the road, the Appian Road to be specific. And somewhere around where this church is located, the legend says Jesus encountered Jesus, uh, Jesus. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, but let me just say it right so that I can feel better about myself. So Peter encountered Jesus. Thank you. And Jesus was heading toward Rome. So imagine that Peter's walking away from Rome, trying to escape persecution, and he passes a guy on the way into Rome who is Jesus. And so the story goes, Peter says, Quo vadis, whither goest thou? Or for our sake, the way Dan would say it, Jesus, where are you going? And the answer that he was given in this story is, I'm going to Rome to be persecuted and crucified again. 
And so the story goes that Peter was so moved by Christ's word that he turned back to Rome and faced whatever awaited him there, which would ultimately be scourging and crucifixion. In fact, when he was crucified, Peter requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy to die in the same way as his master. And this story has carried out through the ages and there's no reason given to make us think that it wasn't true. But you can visit the little church called Quo Vadis if you are ever over there. So the question then is, if Peter encountered his Lord going toward trouble for the sake of the gospel and his mind was changed and Peter turned back toward trouble for the sake of gospel, why not me? Why not you? There's a story of a theologian who had a close encounter with uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Now, you younger folks might not know who this is, but he's a historical figure that I hope that you've learned about in your history classes. Mahatma Gandhi was a man who brought a great deal of change to India back in the 40s uh, because his people were oppressed by an outside country. And he was trying to lead change and revolution, but in a nonviolent way. Gandhi was a peaceful person soft-spoken, and in many ways thought of as being more Christian than a lot of Christians in those days and those places. And so Christians often encountered Gandhi with the message of the gospel. A lot of gospel preaching got sent Gandhi's way because they kept thinking, well, this guy's so close to being like Jesus. He ought to be a personal friend of Jesus. And this theologian described his experience of encountering Gandhi with the message of the gospel. And he talks about how he very thoughtfully and carefully explained the gospel message to Gandhi. And after he was done, Gandhi, being the peaceful, kind, and intelligent man that he was, sat quietly for a while. And he finally looked at this man who had described Jesus being the Lord of his life. And Gandhi said, my problem is my throne is still vacant. In other words, Gandhi was saying that he didn't refute what he was hearing, but he just didn't have anyone sitting on the throne of his life. Well, let's flesh that out just a minute and see where we're going here. You see, what Gandhi was describing is a situation that most of us aren't familiar with. Most of us know exactly who's in charge of our lives, right? If we're honest, we know who's in charge of our lives. Me. I'm in charge of me. You know, when we were little kids, at least when I was a little kid, there was always one kid that was bossier than the rest, and then there was that other mouthy kid that would say, you're not the boss of me, right? You know what I'm saying. Probably never happened around you, right? There's a lot you can learn on the playground at elementary school. So basically, what Gandhi is, is doing in this story is something most of us aren't ready to do yet. He's admitting that while he hasn't let Jesus be the Lord of his life, he is, at least in his case, unsure who is the Lord of his life. I wish more of us could at least get that far, if you think about it, 
Because most of everything you do, most of your priorities are set according to your tastes, according to your comfort, according to the the matters at hand. You know, we are reactionary people when we get right down to it. If we're uncomfortable, we take charge of our situation to relieve our discomfort. If it's raining, you put up your umbrella. If you're cold, you put on a jacket. If you're hungry, you find something to eat. But that's part of the American way that is also hurting us in our relationship with Christ. What happens if in the midst of your pursuit of happiness and comfort and security, you, like Peter, run into Jesus and he's moving toward insecurity, discomfort, and even pain? And what if he's saying, where are you going? It's something to think about. The honest question that we have to ask is, are we going to be as courageous as Peter, look to see where God is at work in our midst, and then join God in it? That's the concept that is really the heart of the question, quo vadis? Where are you going? If you are really committed to Jesus as Lord of your life, then the most important question you can ask him is, where are you going and how shall I follow you? And that's the question that I'd like to remind you of today as I refresh your memory from last Sunday. So last Sunday, we were very fortunate to have our friend the Reverend Dr. Gideon Achi speak to us, and he described how they do ministry in the Mishpael Fountain Ministries of, of uh, Nigeria. And I wrote down some of his words because I really took some notes while he was talking last week. He says, our approach is based on an understanding of evangelism that is about enabling the gospel of grace of God in Jesus Christ that is born into lives, cultures, societies, and traditions of those who exist in a context of hurt and hate. Well, I'll rephrase that and say that basically he was describing evangelism and outreach as an act of going where people are. The answer to the question, where are you going for them, was to go right into the heart of danger to meet people at their point of need. And so what Gideon told us is true for us because it was true for Peter and the other apostles and all those who have followed Jesus faithfully throughout the generations of the Christian world that he will almost certainly lead you to a place that is uncomfortable for you. He will almost certainly lead you towards something that you didn't think up on your own because it didn't set well with you. Remember what Gideon said about the fountains, that they go to where people need clean drinking water and they put fountains in the ground and they mean for anyone who is thirsty to drink from those fountains. Even the Muslims who would kill the Christians just for proclaiming Christ. The people who would be considered the enemies of the Christians 
were invited to the same fountains to drink the same water. And it really messes with their heads, those who hate the Christians. And so the Mishpael model for ministry and in particular for personal discipleship, evangelism and outreach is a self-sacrificing model. Uh, basically taking it a step further, I, I really want to quote Gideon here, so I have to look at my notes, which is always chicory for me because once I get started talking, you know, I forget where I am in my notes. But Gideon says that uh, our theology of missions is based on God revealed in the word rather than in human deductions, okay? So what is the word in this case? It's an expression of the heart and mind of God. You know, when we talk about the word of God, we talk about it, the capital W word as logos or the heart and mind of God. In other words, we're really talking about tapping into the, the, the very uh, being of our creator. We're trying to identify with the one who created us on a very personal level. Not just what God says, but who God is. And so Gideon's description of their evangelism and outreach is that people would meet others at their point of need and in so doing become disciples of the word, that they would be expressions of the word. And so the mission of every Christian who's born again is to be a flesh version of the word of God, that you would be a physical presence of God's word in your community, in your family, in your home, around the places where you work and so forth, and heavenly places like this where we are gathered under the word inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we are the heart and mind of God. We are the compassion, the love, the mercy, the grace. We are all of that, and it is the Lord they experience. And that's when discipleship becomes real. And so our model here at Shiloh for discipleship, evangelism, and outreach really is modeled after the passages we just read and the images that we've just seen in our imagination. We have a picture of ourselves like Peter walking toward discomfort with Christ. We have a picture of ourselves like Gideon and the Mishpael Fountain Ministry serving people with the most basic of needs, a clean drink of water regardless of whether those same people would hate you so much they'd kill you if they had the chance. We have a picture of a self-revealing God who presents himself through the disciple who is more concerned about expressing the heart and mind of God than anything that comes from self. That's what, that's what Gideon means when he says that it isn't about the, the words or the message, it's about the very heart of the person who is the word or the message. All humans, Gideon said, are consisting of spirit, soul, and body, and therefore the approach that he has taken in, in uh, Nigeria is to 
embrace the tension between evangelism and social action and discipleship. And all that really means is, is that when those three elements are balanced together, you are the heart and mind of God expressed in your flesh. So where am I going with this? Maybe you're asking. Well, here's something cool that happened through the Shiloh family a couple of weeks ago. Exceeded my wildest expectations, quite honestly. I called a meeting of everybody who would be interested in discussing a revised version of our mission concept or our outreach evangelism and discipleship, as I like to call it. You know, if you've been in this church for a long time or any church like this one most of your life, you've heard the word missions many times. You've heard the whole idea of giving to missions. And I think that's fine and worthy as far as it goes, but in many churches, quite honestly, it's a check-writing ministry. And it's done from the comfort of the pew or the home and involves very little discomfort for the people who give you give the money so that we can pass it on to people like Gideon who go into harm's way and build fountains for thirsty Muslim people who would kill him for being one who preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God is calling us, all of us, to be like Peter, to ask the question, Lord, where are you going? Knowing that when he answers, we'll be compelled to follow. And the reality that we encountered when we had this get-together a couple of weeks ago on a Saturday morning is over 40 people showed up. You know, I'm going to be honest with you, and I hope you won't hear cynicism as much as you hear just data. Over 25 years of experience in ministry, I've called many meetings just like that one, and usually about six or eight people show up, and they're usually the people that you knew would show up because they always show up. So I was pretty astonished when I saw the great interest that was expressed by people sacrificing a few hours on a Saturday morning. And I started the day by presenting them with my view of ministry in the form of discipleship, evangelism, and outreach. And I basically said, in my world, in my life of experience, I had my whole view of ministry in the local church completely turned upside down by going to the mission field. For me, it was a place called Kazakhstan on the other side of the world. And I lived with people who were doing hands-on mission, discipleship, evangelism, and outreach in a foreign country. And I watched how they did it and what they did and why it worked. And I said to myself, okay, if Shiloh is going to grow, if Shiloh is going to be the kind of church that it needs to be in the 21st century as we move into the 2020s and really settle into our vision for 2030, we need to embrace the missionary mindset uh, toward church growth. And so I shared with those people who were there, and I know some of you are here and hearing it again for the second time, but I said, look, basically, if you're a missionary, what you do is you respond to the call. Something inside compels you to go into the mission field. Then you prepare for that mission field. So they will spend months training, learning languages, learning cultures, embracing their calling and learning skills and techniques that are going to help them succeed when they go into harm's way 
in the mission field. Then they will uh, meet the people at their point of need in the mission field. They'll figure out where people are suffering and how they can relieve suffering in Jesus' name. And they'll establish themselves in their presence through kindness and service. And they'll serve. And they'll serve. And they'll serve. And eventually, those people will begin to wonder what exactly you're doing this for. Do you remember what Gideon told you? That the Muslims who get to use the fountains that they would not share with Christians scratch their heads and say, why did these Christians come and build a fountain and invite even their enemies to use it? They can't wrap their mind around it. And it is at that very moment they are open to the gospel. Right at that moment, they're trying to understand how Christians think because it doesn't add up the way they were raised. And it is that moment when you get to share your faith. And you know what? They were trained to share their faith in context. They knew how to share their faith in an appropriate way. Do you remember what Gideon said last week about how he shares his faith? how it's very thoughtful and very careful. It's done in a way that fits the context of those people with whom he shares it. And so you don't go off half-cocked. You're prepared because you want to succeed. Why do you want to succeed? Because you love Jesus for all that he has given you and done for you, and you want to help his mission succeed. And then, eventually, you invite people into the family of faith. And that is how you grow the church. By being disciples and seeking disciples. And here's a little secret that I shared with the group that Saturday morning. Usually the church doesn't get larger because of all the people we've shared the gospel with deciding to come back to our church and join us in worship. Some of them do. You know why your church starts to grow after you do that? Because discipleship is contagious. Because you actively behaving like a disciple inspires people around you to want to behave like a disciple and hang out with a disciple. And so the church will grow in numbers on Sunday mornings, for example, because people who want to do what you're doing will join you. And they want to join you in making the world a better place. They want to really live out their faith in a way that they haven't and they want to be serious about their walk with Christ. They, like Gandhi, have gotten off of the throne of their lives and they've decided to let Jesus occupy that throne. And so I'll leave you with this last remark. When you decide to give Jesus your throne, that is the only way he can get it. He won't take it from you. And even if you get down for a while, to go into the other room to get a snack or something. Jesus won't jump on your throne and take it over. That's not how he operates. The only way you can give Jesus the throne of your life to be more in charge of you than you are is for you to give it to him. You have to give it to him. You have to say, Jesus, here is my life. Here is 
my self-determination, my drive to make sure that I have security and comfort and ease, that I have everything I need and for the sake of the ones I love and hold dear, I will take care of my own destiny. And as soon as you stop being the Lord of your own destiny and you're ready to give Christ Jesus lordship over your destiny, when you ask him honestly, quote Vadas, where are you going, Lord? And then you follow him, whatever it costs you. That's when these things start to happen. Those 40 people were so fired up after three hours of conversation about how we can serve our community and meet people at their point of need and go into the mission field that's called Jasper and Dubois County and reach people at their point of need. They were so fired up that they decided to meet again and they decided to meet on Monday. Not two weeks or three weeks down the road, they said, okay, if we're serious about this, we're going to get right back to it. And they did. And now they're working on it. I'm looking out over this group of people and I'm seeing faces of people who are working on stuff right now to meet the needs of our community and to serve people. Just like in northern Nigeria, we have a whole lot of people that we need to meet where they are and we need to recognize that they're not going to love us instantaneously, they're going to doubt us. They will threaten us. Fortunately for us, it won't be a life-threatening kind of thing, but don't miss the fact that there are a lot of people in our community and around the world who view Christians in a hostile way. And to be truthful, we've given them plenty of good reasons. They have a good reason to think that we're judgmental, mean-spirited people. We've given them good reasons to think that. If we want them to embrace us, we have to give them water anyway. I'll close with this example. I thought about it recently as uh, Laura and I were on a little road trip this week. I met lots of nice people that I'm pretty sure their lifestyle and their whole view of social norms is very different from mine. And I really enjoyed making their acquaintance. But I suspect that if they had known that I was the pastor of this church that just disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church, if they had known that I was going to be standing here a couple of days later talking to you about what the Bible says about truth and the word, the heart and mind of God, they would have become a little uncomfortable being my friend because they would have viewed me as someone who was hostile toward their way of life. And the truth is, is I felt nothing but love. And so I gave them water, which in my case was just friendship. I didn't tell them who I was or what I thought about anything. I just embraced the relationship. And if I'd have been there long enough, I suspect we would have become friends. And if I'd have become friends with them long enough, I suspect that they might have been more open to hearing whatever I think about things, as I listened openly and non-judgmentally to their view of things. I'd still fight to the death to preserve my beliefs about who God is and why God never changes. But I would love those people 
because Christ loves those people and he compels me to do so. So that's our mission field, beloved, and that is how we grow the church, by going where he sends us, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Now, burn it upon our hearts for your name's sake. Amen. Thank you.